Calling all birders. Join us from May 18th to the 21st, 2023 for the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. Don't miss the premier event for both amateur and seasoned bird watchers. Enjoy workshops, keynote presentations, and over 200 species of birds. Start planning your trip by visiting greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. That's greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks to everybody who came out to the Nashville Bird of the Year reveal this weekend. If you haven't heard, the 2023 bird is Belted Kingfisher. The art by Nashville artist Liz Clayton Fuller was spectacular. The event itself, really fun. We did something a little bit different this year. We not only held the Saturday evening event, which was live streamed, and the link is in the show notes to anyone who wants to watch it, but we did a whole birdie weekend around the reveal. We did a couple workshops on Saturday and Sunday afternoon, an art workshop and a really cool modus tracking workshop. We also hosted bird walks on Saturday and Sunday mornings to Nashville birding sites. And although it was the middle of December, which is not really a birdie time of year for the inland Southeast, my Tennessee list was boosted Something like 30 species, though admittedly it it consisted to that point of birds I saw on the highway and in the yard of an Airbnb in Knoxville, but low-hanging fruit is still delicious fruit. For those wondering, we did have our 2023 Bird of the Year on both walks, so if the idea was to host the event at a place where one could see the bird, we did succeed. In fact, as we were wrapping up at Radnor Lake State Park on Sunday morning, saying goodbyes to attendees and, and my colleagues who were there. A pair of belted kingfishers flew high over the parking lot, rattling loudly. Uh, almost the very last bird we saw on this trip, so that was very appropriate. I also recorded an interview with Liz that will run early in the new year, so that was exciting as well. But before all that, we still got a couple more episodes in the year of the burrowing owl to get to, and I hope you enjoy them. My colleagues Katinka Doman and Ted Floyd recently returned from a three-week-long excursion to Antarctica, with ABA travel, I brought them on soon after their return to talk about their experiences at the bottom of the world. But first, this week's Rare Birds. This is the Rare Bird Focus for the middle of December 2022. Hot Limpkin summer turned to surprising Limpkin fall, now to unbelievable Limpkin winter. Kentucky, at long last, records its first record of Limpkin in Todd County this after being practically surrounded by Limpkin records over the last two years. Also interesting, this is Kentucky's third new bird species in the last month or so. For those keeping track, uh, i.e. me mostly, Alaska sits in the pole position for most new state or provincial birds in 2022 with eight, although the Scripps Merlet is questionable. The only state close is Michigan, which itself had seven, though one of those, the Southern Lapwing, is also at the mercy of local committees. So, because this will be the last Rayburn focus of the year, and barring any changes for the next two weeks, we are at 114 total firsts for 52 ABA area state, provinces, territories, districts. The only state, province, etc. not to get a first in the last two years remains, for the second year running, Manitoba. Also of note, brown jays have returned to Salonano, Texas for the first time in more than a decade. A flock of five were seen at that little town just north of the river. Brown jays are found throughout the Americas and used to be somewhat reliable in the area until they just kind of stopped 10 years ago. The last recorded brown jays in the ABA area were in April 2012. Yours truly missed those birds by a week. Does this mean we might be in for a lengthy stay again? Who knows? 
but it's very exciting. They are a very cool bird. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. My colleagues, Ted Floyd and Katika Doman here at the American Birding Association recently came back from a really fantastic excursion to the southernmost continent on Earth, Antarctica. Uh, Antarctica is a bucket list destination for a lot of birders and naturalists out there. And we're going to talk a little bit about how that trip went off, how they enjoyed it, what they saw, and uh, any manner of Antarctica-related discussion here. Uh, Welcome to you both. Hey, Ted. Hey, Katinka. It's great to talk to you about this. Thank you, Nate. Great to be here. Speaking for myself, um, Antarctica has always been one of those kind of destinations that has always sort of been on the bucket list for me, a place that you would absolutely love to go to. Um, Is it the same for you? Is Antarctica a place that's always sort of been on your list of of experiences? Well, I'll I'll start off. I I guess... um... Sure. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the end of the earth. It's the yeah. seventh continent. Um, I have a feeling we'll get into this in some detail later. But uh, one destination in particular, uh, which is uh, in the Southern Ocean, it's near Antarctica, but not on the Antarctic mainland proper, uh, is South Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the place that, uh, for the past several years in particular, I've really sort of uh, sought to visit more than anywhere else on Earth. I think for me, for a very long time, it probably wasn't even really on my radar, um, contrary to that of most people, maybe. Um, But I mean, obviously, it's a very unique once in a lifetime experience. And I'm extremely grateful that I got to do this. Um, But my bucket list had so many other destinations still on it before even thinking about this one that it's sort of like, this is totally unreal. I actually did this already. Um, So yeah, maybe maybe slightly different from... um, from what's on other people's bucket list just because there are so many places to explore and this was just so out of this world and so far out there mm-hmm. that I never even dreamed of doing anything like this two years ago. So, Yeah, Ted, you bring up an in- interesting point that, you know, South Georgia was perhaps that, that site for you. A trip to Antarctica is not just a trip to the actual continent ice covered continent of antarctica it's it's more than that it's it's the islands off of south america it's the drake passage it's all these sorts of things that people don't may not necessarily think of when they're thinking of um you know icebergs and penguins yeah so i I believe that one way of getting to antarctica is in fact in a sense just getting to antarctica so Mm. you go from tierra del fuego across the drake passage so going straight south pretty much to the Antarctic Peninsula and back. So that would be sort of like the, um, I guess, the most basic way of uh, ticking the seventh continent off if that's what one wants to do. Uh, but Kinnick and I were involved in a much more um, circuitous <laughs> route mm-hmm. to, uh, to South Georgia. So we um, went um, uh, well east and actually north a bit of um, Tierra del Fuego to the Falklands and then much farther east and south uh, down to um, South Georgia and then sort of came way back to the west to get to um, the Antarctic uh, mainland proper. So uh, we got to to see it all, really. Um, and I'm grateful for that because as dramatic as the uh, the Drake Passage was, um, A, I'm not sure I would want to have done it twice. We only had to do it <laughs> once coming back. Uh, and then B, getting to see the Falklands and especially uh, South Georgia was just so special. Yeah, maybe I should back up a little bit. How does one get to these places in the first place? Depending on where you start, obviously, like we both started in the United mm-hmm. States and then um, yeah, sure. 
have a very, very long flight to uh, Buenos Aires. And then from there with a local airline, you fly to Ushuaia, uh, which is where we set off uh, on this mm -hmm. Antarctic expedition. Um, so yeah, it, it does take a little bit of uh, planning and scheduling to even make it to the starting point. Um, but again, it's it's absolutely definitely worth it um, because Ushuaia in itself was a really nice place to start off our mm -hmm. first bird list um, and get acclimatized a little bit to the weather and the birds. Um, so yeah, a, a great starting point really. From then, excuse me, from then, where did you go? <laughs> yeah, so we sort of um, did this combination of, you know, multiple days at sea and then, you mm -hmm. know, multiple day partial landings. Uh, and that's essentially the only way to do it. Um, getting to Antarctica by uh, helicopter airplane is um, quite uncommon. <laughs> so, 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 so you're going to be uh, in a boat for quite some time. Yeah, we were on um, a large boat. I think they said about 100. 25 meters, I believe. Um, so, uh, no, 150 meters. Yeah, yeah, close to 500 feet. Uh, and, yeah, for, uh, uh, for the uh, for the imperial uh, measurements. There we go. Yes, right. right. And we yes. were on, on uh, we were on metric measurements the whole time. So I, I know you, know, I know. you got used yeah. to it. temperatures and degrees uh, Celsius. And, yeah, yes, and, and uh, distances and kilometers and masses and grams and, and other things like that the whole time that we were out there. But yeah, so um, so after um, Ushuaia, as Katinka mentioned. Um, uh, a full day and, and really almost two days to get out to the Falklands. Uh, and then from the Falklands to South Georgia, two and a half days. And then from South Georgia down to Antarctica, another two or three days. And then across the Drake Passage back was two days. So that's just the time at sea. Mm -hmm. uh, so it involves, um, you know, crossings of um, hundreds of, of kilometers, um, really more, more than a thousand kilometers um, at a time to get from one major um, destination to another. But as Ted said, though, that's probably the most interesting way to do it because you could mm -hmm. just cross the Drake twice and sail straight to Antarctica. But I think the entire loop that we did from Falklands to South Georgia to Antarctica and then back through the Drake to Ushuaia was really what made it so interesting um, to see like the diversity um, of habitats and um, of species because also every day um, you pass some sort of invisible border somewhere yeah. um, between one set of species and the next um and then obviously all the landings that you do in between are probably at least for me the highlights of the entire trip so i think doing that loop was what made it for me a, a, a very interesting trip and not everyone gets the chance to do that there's there's plenty mm -hmm. of cruises that will just take you to the antarctic peninsula and straight back um but i feel like if you put in all the effort and um yeah. up enough to actually do this trip it's definitely worth it to do the entire three-week loop including the falklands in south georgia yeah, I think in my mind, as someone who's never been to that part of the world, the Falklands and South Georgia are kind of taken together as these, uh, I don't know, lots of penguins, lots of seals, not much different between them. Um, what are the differences between those two groups of islands? What did you see there that, that at one that you might not have seen at the other? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I would have shared your impression <laughs> Nate, yeah, uh, sure. uh, yeah. a, a month ago, but I, I guess I'm here to, to tell you that they really are as different 
as can be. Uh, I mean, the Falklands, for starters, is you know substantially inhabited by by humans. There, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's infrastructure, there are roads, there are restaurants and hotels. Um, I, I think that the population of South Georgia is like you know eight human beings or something <laughs> uh, like that. And, and, and they're basically there just to sort of, you know, to, to run the place, you know, you don't, you don't mm-hmm. go to school or, or, or catch a bus or anything like that there. So that, that's a major uh, difference for sure. Another key difference, and this is something that really I didn't really appreciate until I was down there is that they're, um, if I understand this correctly, that they're, they're in different oceans and they're certainly on different sides mm-hmm. of what's called the Antarctic convergence. Um, so, uh, South Georgia is in that really, really cold, you know, biologically hyperproductive Southern Ocean, and the Falklands are north of the uh, convergence. So yes, there are a lot of penguins on South Georgia, and less, yes, there are a lot of uh, pinnipeds, but um, I'm sorry, I, on the Falklands, but it's just staggeringly, overwhelmingly, you know, in your mm-hmm. face, you know, abundant, super, hyperabundant um, on um, on South Georgia. So uh, to me, the experiences were really uh, quite, quite, quite different. I would have said that. Um, South Georgia's, you know, sort of just unspoiled wilderness, just just incredible seascapes and landscapes. And uh, the Falklands is a place with, you know, substantial infrastructure. And by the way, <laughs> many, many more birds, too. You know, mm-hmm. many, 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 many more species of mm-hmm. birds. You know, you have a, it's a impoverished, but nevertheless, you know, a suite of passerines of, of songbirds um, at the, uh, the, the Falklands and only one species at South Georgia. That's like a here. goose, isn't there? Or a couple of geese? Oh, on the Falklands? On the Falklands, yeah. Oh, and I, I didn't just mean endemic birds. I I, yeah. I meant that um, they're, they're passerines. They're, they're metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like a synclides and, 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 and a, yeah. Yeah, so... No, you can you could do a big day on the on the, um, on the uh, Falklands, <laughs> and I don't know what that would really even mean at South Georgia. So. Uh, in total number of species, perhaps <laughs> total number of individuals. In total say. number of individuals, but all, all species yeah. probably found within minutes of one another. Yes, yeah, right, right. right. Th- that's the on land portion of the show of the trip. Well, what's what's the at sea portion? I mean, it sounds like you're on the boat at sea, looking at. Uh, the ocean for long periods of time. What is that experience like? Are there are there seabirds all over the place? Is it like a East Coast pelagic where um, it's long stretches of boredom followed by brief moments of high excitement, or um, or is it more more continuous than that? Yeah. As for the pelagic birding or the seabirding, um, I have little to no experience with pelagic birding in the United States. I can't really make any comparison there. Um, Sorry about that. Um, As you know, like most of my birding is in Central America and Northern South America. So not too much pelagic birding there. there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do think that there was a lot of good birding throughout the day. I mean, there were obviously locations or times of day where we had Mm. more species to look at or more individuals to look at. Um, But I was actually somewhat surprised, perhaps, um, at at how good the birding was and at how much we actually saw. Um, That being said, sailing away from South Georgia, just along the coast there and still relatively close to the land was probably the best seabirding we had on the entire Mm -hmm. trip. There were literally thousands and thousands of um, petrels and prions um, next to the ship. So for the seabirding, I think that was definitely um, the highlight for pretty much everyone. Um, And then what we talked about a little bit earlier too, the birding and the species just change every 
day or maybe every two days or so. So mm-hmm. you get like a different set when you're sailing from um, Ushuaia to the Falkland, Falklands and then again from the Falklands to South Georgia and then again from South Georgia to um, to to the Antarctic Peninsula. But yeah, we we stood on deck literally probably about 15 hours every day or so. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty impressive. And even though you don't get like a hundred different species, we did get really good numbers and we did get fairly close up views of um, most of the birds that we were looking at. And that does really um, matter because it's kind of not that easy to identify um yeah. slender build yeah, prions from fairy prions and blue petrels and and all those um so it was in my opinion really really active and having said not having much experience with pelagics i was maybe not really aware of what to expect but i was impressed with how much we saw you're probably going to be ruined for pelagics now <laughs> <laughs> So I'll, I'll answer that question, Nate, actually with a, one, one species in, in, in particular. Katinka mentioned um, sailing alongside the um, alongside South Georgia. But uh, for, for me, it was the, uh, the sort of the final approach to South Georgia right before we got there. And um, one of the, uh, the spotters, one of the guides, Ricardo Matus, uh, sent a, a group text out to everybody. And it just said something like, uh, many prions ahead. And then there was this pause. And it, it, I think he said, many, many capital many prions and <laughs> we've been seeing antarctic prions sort of like in groups of like you know well twos and threes and then fives and tens and suddenly there were tens of thousands of antarctic prions just surrounding the boat um all of us thought that the uh, the upper estimate was you know in the, in the six figures one estimate was in the seven figures but i mean tens of thousands of prions you, you nate i think you probably have like zero species of prion on your yeah, enviable correct. north not, carolina not, list. not a species we see in north carolina not yet some pretty impressive species uh, off north carolina and um at times it was almost like snow out there so, so prions are um, quite pale and um, they're small and they're, um, they're bigger than snowflakes but just a, like a snow globe of prions out there and uh, Truly, like until that moment, you know, just seeing one or two prions was sort of like a shout across the bow kind of moment. You know, let everybody know there's a prion, there's a prion. And then all of a sudden there were tens of thousands of Antarctic prions uh, just milling about the boat. And we sort of plowed through the flock and then they sort of went back down to the, the twos and threes. But that uh, that snow globe of just tens of thousands of Antarctic prions is something that I'll uh, carry with me forever. Katinka, you kind of mentioned, uh, you kind of hinted at this question I wanted to ask um, when you said that you are on deck uh, for 15 hours a day. Um, what is it like birding in those like 20, 20 plus hours of daylight? Like where, how do you, how do you kind of marshal your energies at the best time when you've got birdable hours for almost the entire 24 hour period? Um it's really hard to know when you should be out right because it's true something can show up like literally every minute of every single day and as you mentioned it's pretty much light all Mm -hmm. the time um so we did always have like briefings in the evening about where we were going to be um and sort of what to expect so if we were anywhere in like a specific area where we were supposed to see certain species. Um, so for example, like 
in the Beagle Channel or just off the coast of South Georgia or approaching a certain rock or whatever, um, we'd know about that and there would be announcements made when we were <laughs> more or less going to approach that area. So like an, an announcement would we would be made whenever we were close to the convergence or close to shag rocks or whatever. Um, so then obviously like everyone would just like stream outside and uh, stand on deck. Mm -hmm. But other than that, like literally people were out on deck from 5.30 in the morning until well after dinner time. Um, and between the guides, we just had this WhatsApp group going on. So if something really out of the ordinary showed up, we could message each other and there were walkie talkies mm -hmm. too. So we could let each other know if... Um, whatever, if an Antarctic petrel showed up because that was like one of the sought after species of the trip, right? So there was some communication um, going on to make sure that as many people got as many of their target species as possible. But yeah, other than that, it's kind of hard to time. Um, yeah. And it's just a matter of having people out on deck looking for stuff all the time. And even though that may not always be you, there will be someone shouting out, hey, we're seeing whatever and then everyone can yeah. get a chance to get out on deck i think it would be even difficult to like find when to sleep when <laughs> you know you'd be afraid of missing stuff all the time <laughs> at least i would i'm speaking for myself yeah and i do think that's realistic right you you do you yeah. do miss species and um for <laughs> yeah, most yeah, instances there yeah. there actually are second chances <laughs> not for all of them but <laughs> yeah. for most of them yeah. um and i i do think we um, with the entire team and uh, the whole crew and the guys and the passengers, we did a pretty good job at making sure that everyone got to see all uh, all they wanted. Mm -hmm. I was just going to sort of talk to one specific example and sort of special example of this phenomenon of, of getting the word out. And this was for what was for many people the most special bird of the entire trip, which was uh, Emperor Penguin. Yeah, that's and, not um, a not a not not something you can guarantee on these sorts. Apparently, of trips. it's far from from, from yeah. From it requires an even but, more specialized trip. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the the captain got us through uh, literally miles of uh, of sea ice uh, to a place. And I just love this name, the Erebus and Terror Gulf, uh, which is sort of as daunting sounding, uh, daunting looking as it sounds. And um, we got to the, the penguins, and uh, the best viewing was actually at around ten fifteen at night. Um, so it was getting kind of hazy, low light, but the, the, the penguins were were visible, and um, every single person on deck got to see them. I have some friends who um, had um, repaired to the spa uh, quite some time before this, but they came out in their robes and got wonderful looks uh, at the uh, the birds. Uh, there are also some folks who just, you know, given the size of a expedition like this, had, were sick. Um, and and with more than 200 people, you know, including staff and, and uh, crew on board, uh, there will always be some, some sick people. And they actually were able to get them to a, a special safe place for viewing uh, where they too could see the uh, the penguin so every single person uh, on the boat got to see emperor penguin um at 10 15 p.m <laughs> uh, mm. i think we were in gridvikin time at the no 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 we were probably back in whatever time zone uh, buenos aires is at the time anyway, we, we, it was 10 p.m it was it was dark light if you if you take my meaning and i think everybody uh, got on that and you know it's i don't think it's sort of a, a cliche or an exaggeration to say that uh, you know a king penguin on ice, right by the boat at 10, 15 p.m. Or an emperor penguin, summer. rather. Or emperor penguin, I'm sorry. Yeah. Emperor, yeah. emperor penguin, yes. <laughs> emperor How many penguin penguins to keep them all straight? Is, um, it's just sort of a, uh, I mean, 
not only a once in a lifetime experience, birders have a lot of those, but it's really sort of a, it's a holy grail, you know, sort of ultimate oh, yeah. wildlife experience on earth sort of thing up there. So now the only thing I have left to see is a, a, a colossal squid, but I'll have to figure that out. That's going to be difficult, so, right. I'm afraid to tell you. Yep. Anyhow. <laughs> it was also interesting to see how, how, everything cooperated for us to actually see the emperor penguins mm -hmm. the weather was weird because until five days ago the whole Weddell sea was supposed to be full of ice and there was not supposed to be any passage but mm -hmm. then by the time we got there it was remarkably empty um and then we were lucky to have a captain who is sort of a daredevil and he was like yeah let's continue <laughs> on um and he just kept going and going and going and there were more and more ice flows all around us and um he was just like yeah we're going for it um and literally everyone was out on deck just spotting and looking at like every single funny looking shape out on the ice like at first kilometers in the distance and people were already like cheering and high-fiving um <laughs> and then as ted said we had them like standing on an ice floe like literally just next to the ship at at 10 15 in the evening so yeah everything just worked together perfectly and that definitely is once in a lifetime and not once in everyone's lifetime Hey, uh, Katanka mentioned our uh, daredevil captain, and, and there was one thing he wouldn't do, and I'm very glad he didn't, which was uh, to uh, try to uh, thread the needle through a formation called uh, Neptune's <laughs> Bellows, um, which uh, I think it's like, Katanka, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like only like a few hundred meters from one side to the other, and it's very, very uh, steep, and there's like some like big rock in the middle that ships like run aground on, like including recently, not in the early 20th century, but like, you know, a few yeah. weeks or months ago, and I think at the time, the uh, the winds were like 50 knots and the seas were nine meters or something. And uh, discretion was the better part of valor. Oh, we wouldn't have been able to see it either because we were in full on blizzard whiteout conditions. Exactly. Like we, couldn't even see, we couldn't see from one side of the boat to another, let alone the, uh, the Neptune's bellows. So we didn't get to go through Neptune's bellows. And if we had <laughs> attempted it, we probably never would have come out of Neptune's bellows. So, uh, say, it's got to be kind of intimidating to go into some of these places. I mean, these ice flows are the size of the ship, right? Well, actually, they're much bigger than the yeah, ship. Well, because uh, it's all it, underwater, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, and uh, we, we got to sail past... Uh, Take, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the A76A, which um, the exactly. fragment of which we passed by was 77 miles long. And it took us, what, about six hours to get past uh, that fragment of A76A. So um, some of these icebergs are bigger than U.S. states. Yeah. Well, very small states. Still, <laughs> they're bigger than U.S. states. Oh, <laughs> uh, so you know we've we've been talking a lot about the birds, but I there's other animals down there as well. And, you know, what was the mammal situation? I know the pinnipeds on um, the elephant seals and fur seals and whatnot on South Georgia and Falklands are justifiably famous, but were there cetaceans? Were there whales and dolphins as well? Um, yeah, we did we did get to see quite a few whales. Um, maybe. Not as many as 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 some people would have expected. It was mm -hmm. apparently like not the best month for that. Um, mm -hmm. But even so, we saw fin whales and um, 
we saw, oh, I forget the names of all these species already, but I think we saw at least like five or six different species. Or yeah, so, so whale, whale taxonomy is as vexed, if not more so than uh, seabird taxonomy. Yeah. And, and really, honestly, like identifying these things just oh, by yeah, like, a fake yeah. or a blow, um, it, it's it's pretty tough. But uh, we did see the humbugs and we saw minkies and um, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we, we did see some variety. So that was good. And then we we had all the different um, seals, um, elephant seals, obviously being super super cool. Um, this is a, how how big is an elephant seal? Avoid. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're big. Was and it scary. bigger or smaller than you expected? <laughs> I'm definitely bigger than I expected. Yeah. And the the weird thing is, I mean, obviously they're massive, right? And they're just laying like big blobs mm-hmm. on the beach. Um, and you're landing on this beach that's just covered in them. And they kind of seem harmless when they're just laying around there. But then one tries to move and all of a sudden they do become somewhat scary and then you see all the scarring <laughs> and all the marks and um i took some pictures of of these elephant seals like all bloodied um and you start to realize yeah uh yep these creatures hunt and they fight and they're mighty <laughs> and i am yeah. very small here <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and they're big compared to like anything the um so they're in the order carnivora which includes like you know bears and uh and lions and and just to put things in perspective a a large bull elephant seal can be five or six times more massive than a polar bear which is a Hmm. gargantuan animal so you know never mind a lion which is like basically like a little kitty cat compared to (laughs) to one of these elephant seals they are just monstrous i think somebody made the point to me like oh they must weigh you know at least you know 800 pounds and like you know try uh, 800 yeah. pounds <laughs> or or more another person remarked to me that um the largest elephant seals are uh, actually more massive than four passenger airplanes um they Jeez, are just mean. i know they're just they're so big and they're so loud that's the uh, <laughs> the other thing um i want to mention hey and real quickly just circling back to uh, cetaceans just personally i thought that the um the humpback whale viewing was better than I've ever seen it anywhere mm-hmm. on earth. You know, humpbacks really get around. Yeah, they're the neat, everywhere. The, yeah. the neat thing about the humpbacks was we got to um, see them um, in these sort of protected uh, like l- l- lagoons, you know, right up against the, um, the, 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 the actual landings, you know, around the, uh, the ice. So it, to me, and actually Nate, I think of a like, humpback whale viewing that you and I did in uh, Newfoundland a, a mm-hmm. while ago, you know, they're kind of out in the open ocean and it was kind of cool to mm-hmm. see, you know, you know, we have always to get around this iceberg to, you know, get, get the perfect look at the, at the humpback or something. So it was really neat to get quite close to humpbacks um, and uh, to see them close to land like that too. I think it's also interesting that we got to see them out of the Zodiacs because just because of that, mm-hmm. you really feel that proximity. And as, as Ted said, the setting was absolutely stunning, um, but also you're low on the water um, mm-hmm. and you do get to see them pretty pretty close up um so yeah that was that was definitely like the best whale sighting we had on the entire trip do you I mean, we've talked a lot about moments here and there um that that you really enjoy do you have any sort of favorite moments best memories that you're going to take with you uh after this trip stuff that's really going to stick with you birds or mammals that you really wanted to see that they were that lived up to the expectations things like that um i I think I have a few. It's it's really hard to just 
choose yes. one yeah, I know how that on is. a three-week yeah. trip like that. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'll I'll limit it to three, maybe two or three. Um, so for me, one of the most amazing locations and experiences was um, still on South Georgia. One of the last stops we made there, I think it's called old harbor i'm not entirely sure Mm -hmm. um but that was like the last stop we made on south georgia and just we were so lucky that the weather changed right before we got on land the sun was out the sky was blue the mountains were black the snow was white there's elephant seals and fur seals all over the beach there's this massive gentoo penguin colony and um we we're trying to find a place to land and there was just so much wildlife that mm. basically the only way for us to move around there was through the river. Um, mm. So we land, we, we come out of the Zodiacs and everyone just starts following this river. And that was just the most unreal experience for me just because the colors were so strong and the wildlife was so close and so loud and it's really hard to explain like it's really hard to somehow convey what it feels like that you're there and you're surrounded by all this life in the most unlikely of places on the planet and um just the smells and the sounds and the temperature and everything worked together to make that such a magical moment and none of the species i saw there were like the um rarest of the trip but just the whole setting there made me feel so small and so privileged to be there um that was like a very special moment for me personally. And then um, we already talked about the emperor penguins. That was obviously one of the highlights, just a soul sailing through all those icebergs and all this like flat ice. Um, and it's all, all around us and um, it's getting really late at night and everyone's trying so hard to spot those emperor penguins and then we see them and they're so close and everyone is so excited and at the same time two antarctic petrels just flew straight over the ship which was again one of those species that we weren't so sure that we were actually gonna see and get good looks at and again one of those moments where everything just worked together um looking at for emperor penguins what 100 meters away and having those two antarctic petrels soar right overhead was quite magical too um and then my favorite bird of the trip the one that i really wanted to see and i wanted to see it in like really specific circumstances um Mm -hmm. were snow petrels and we'd Mm -hmm. seen them like since the early beginning of the trip but i sort of specifically wanted to see them fly in front of icebergs because obviously (laughs) that's how you're supposed to see them like in the combination with all the white and the blue from the icebergs um so yeah just seeing several dozen of them doing that and really close to the ship um 
yeah, like my wishes were fulfilled. <laughs> so for, for me, I'm going to um, just sort of quickly acknowledge that there were two birds that I really, really wanted to see and they did not disappoint. Uh, and they were the South Georgia Pippet and the Wandering Albatross. And I'll just sort of quite leave it the, at that. And, quite the variance there. Uh, yes, and I, I get it. But they were just two birds that, well, actually, I had to experience with Wandering Albatross, but, you know, sort of dissatisfyingly so. And then South Georgia Pippet, of course, was just... Um, bird I'd never had any chance of seeing at all because it's it right, only yeah, on South Georgia. So, yeah. so they, 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 they perform very, very, very well. But I'm, I'm going to actually, uh, for, for a special, um, I can't even say bird, special biota, uh, say uh, the, the following two. Um, so, so the first would actually be the skuas. Um, mm-hmm. And most of all, the um, the South Polar skuas. Uh, so we saw actually most of the skuas we saw, well, we saw quite a number of skuas, but um, brown, the taxonomy is so weird, brown or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Chilean. But, you know, but the South Polar skuas, you know, the ones that, you know, probably like you, Nate, you know, that um, I've, I've seen up, it. I've seen it in uh, North Carolina. <laughs> right. Well, I was just going to say, so like my first South Polar skua, you know, well over a quarter century ago was on this like hot sort of slow summer day off the coast of New Jersey in like mm-hmm. I, mid 1990s. And, you know, just I mean, it was a hot day off the Jersey coast. And that's sort of like how I come to think of south polar skuas you know birds that you see in the the northern summer and and of course i totally get it's their winter and and but that was all very abstract to me and i didn't realize just how like south polar the south polar skuas are (laughs) they breed unbelievably far south and just you know seeing them sort of in their in their element very close to the zodiacs um, was so special and they were just so southern and so polar and just reflecting on the fact that you know you can also see them you know off the coast of North Carolina or California mm-hmm. or somewhere like that. Uh, and then finally, and just in the um, sort of category of complete surprise for me, which is how taken I was with the um, the non-animal life. Um, so the um, the grasses and the mosses and the uh, lichens, um, uh, the liverworts, for, for, for example, um, incredibly colorful and actually highly diverse. Once you, now there aren't many, um, you know, uh, uh, higher plants <laughs> and where, where we where we went in fact on antarctica they're only two species and they're very very small but the uh the color and the texture and the uh the whole landscapes of um you know staggering rock faces covered in you know from what i could tell dozens of species mm-hmm. of lichens was so taking it uh, take uh, to, uh, for me anyhow um the, the ice scapes were incredible the the snowscapes were amazing the storms and the clouds but um all the color of the uh the lichens and the um and the bryophytes was really really um sort of arresting for me too so I have a, a question where I'll kind of switch gears a little bit. And we we talk a lot about, and the ABA promotes this idea a lot, of eco, ecotourism as sort of a driver for yeah. conservation. Um, and it's certainly true of a lot of places in the Americas where local communities have kind of sprung up around ecotourism and it gives people an impetus to to protect these areas for, for birds and, and other wildlife. Um, it seems like that sort of thing is less obvious in a place like Antarctica. Um, not a lot of development. No one's trying to cut down habitat for farmlands. Um, uh, what is the what is the conservation challenges in a place like this, and how does how does tourism impact that in a positive way? I think, like obviously, yes, there there are no people living there, so there's no <laughs> supporting at least. the yeah. locals um, in in that way. I think. Um, there are probably other ways that tourism to the Antarctic or to the Southern Ocean um, has an impact on conservation, though. First of all, um, I mean, 
positive and negative impacts, right? And mm-hmm. negative impacts being mitigated as much as we possibly can. You have no idea how many times we uh, had to go through um, disinfection, like of all our gear, boots, whatever, mm-hmm. um, being super, super careful about not um, bringing in any seeds or any traces from any place else we had been not in Antarctica, not in South Georgia, not in the Falklands. So um, Quark was really, really thorough about that. So um, really trying to mitigate our negative impact. Um, and then as positive impact, I I think like part of it is obviously like we're, we're observing, we're monitoring whatever um, we see, we're trying to take um, note of that and share that with the rest of the world and at the same time also um we had a lot of very knowledgeable um people on board who um shared that knowledge with us through all sorts of presentations about all the research that's being done um in antarctica and in all the other places that we visited the importance um of studying um, the albatrosses, for example. Um, And I think just sharing that knowledge is probably um, one way of tourism having a positive impact in that Mm -hmm. area. Yeah, uh, so what what Katinka said, I I don't really have anything um, (laughs) contradictory to to, to say, but maybe just a few sort of points of of amplification. Kanika mentioned the, um, I think what they referred to as the biosecurity. So mm-hmm. these really rigorous protocols we had to go through. And one that um, was especially striking to me, and it was, I mean, it was, I guess it was sort of frustrating, but I completely understand it, was the um, restrictions on what we could do on land. So I totally get that we can't just, you know, waddle up to a penguin and throw our arms around the penguin. Like I wouldn't have wanted to have done that anyhow. But <laughs> one that I wasn't prepared for um, was the complete prohibition of ever putting anything other than our feet on the ground. Uh, so you could not hmm. drop a backpack on the ground or you know, just drop a pair of gloves to fiddle with a camera or even take a rest, uh, for example, during the uh, the uh, Shackleton reenactment that both Katinka and I did. I mean, you were really on your feet the whole time. Um, I did more squatting uh, to get photos of birds than I've done in a <laughs> long, long time because I, I was not allowed to get on my belly or even on my but to watch birds, I had to be, you know, um, on two feet the whole time. So they take it really, really seriously there. And the, the biosecurity, is, as Katinka said, was something that, you know, if you looked at the entire expedition, consumed many, many, many hours of our of our time. Um, the folks with Cork um, constantly reminded us that um, we are to be ambassadors for Antarctica. That, that phrase was sort of, you know, um, battered into our heads. And I think it's a really, really good point there that um, you can do anything. You can eat a meal. You couldn't flush a toilet without sort of environmental awareness there. And, and I do hope that a lot of folks will, in fact, I, th- I think everybody will will come back sort of in that ambassador uh, capacity. And the, the final um, area sort of of the, the, the positive benefit of um, ecotourism I want to mention had to do with this um, recent rat eradication of um, on South Georgia mm-hmm. that one of our, uh, one of the Cork staff was saying is heavily motivated by um, ecotourism. So, I mean, one argument you could make I'm going back like five or 10 years here is that, well, I mean, it's just this pivot on South Georgia, you know, I mean, the grand scheme of things, it's not really 
doing anything in terms of major ecosystem services, which is an incredibly, you know, mercenary and, you know, economics only way of looking at bio, um, biodiversity. I don't personally subscribe to it at all. But um, the, the person who gave the lecture was saying that um, the keen desire by, by birders and other visitors to see the South Georgia pipit was part of the justification for getting rid of the rats so as to you know, promote the populations of the South Georgia pipit, which incidentally is doing fantastically well now. Folks who had been there only four or five years ago uh, were saying that the the explosion in the population of South Georgia pipits um, in response to the rat, rat, rat eradication was something that nobody hmm. had foreseen. So that, that's an example of where um, the human desire to see this you know little brown bird that ekes out its wretched existence on South Georgia. You know, it, it was, was, you know, sometimes I, I take sort of an economics viewpoint of things mm-hmm. there, um, but the protection and, and perhaps the, you know, the, 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 you know, preservation of the species was importantly motivated by, by tourists. Hmm. I think also the 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 fact that we had to go through all this biosecurity in combination with people like experts talking to us about the importance of not bringing anything on land, about being careful about where we have been, about not spreading, for example, bird flu, um, mm-hmm. about not bringing rodents uh, on land, not even accidentally. They now have this program with sniffer dogs that come onto the ship right. um, and wow. inspect the entire ship uh, to make sure there are no rats or other rodents on the ship that might somehow make it onto a Zodiac yeah. that might then get onto land. Um, so they were really, really very thorough about all of that and the other thing that um that i i noticed is it just makes me a lot more aware now of the risk i pose to bird mm-hmm. populations or habitats because because of carelessness like i go to one place and i don't even think twice about just putting on the same shoes and going to the next one and and not being aware of of what impact that might have and i think that that definitely changed because we had to be so thorough and because we were explained very carefully what the consequences of our behaviors can be um and that's something that i will be a lot more aware of now for the future also in other places i go to um And the other thing that I think uh, was also important is that um, Quark and other operators in the area are part of IATO, which is like the tourism organization for anyone going to the Antarctic or offering trips to the Antarctic. Um, They're being very thorough again about the biosecurity, but also, Mm -hmm. for example, about the places that you can actually visit. So there are very clear limitations on how many ships can anchor at a certain place Mm. or how many people can visit a certain beach or a certain area. And those um, limitations are different for every location that you visit. Sometimes it may be that there's only a hundred people allowed on land at this at this specific beach or this specific landing place. Otherwise, in, in other instances, it's there cannot be more than three ships anchored in this bay or something like that. And your time on land is also always um, limited. And it's very specific, like you 
get on land and then they'll brief you once you get off the Zodiac and tell you you have one hour and 15 <laughs> minutes and then you need to get back off just because there are very strict regulations in place to protect exactly all the things that we come to see. Um, so they're very rigorous about that. And um, I think it's just a very good uh, learning school, a very good experience um, to make you aware of your own personal impact. Hey, on a sort of a lighthearted note, um, I was uh, really struck by the uh, restrictions against ever setting foot on a penguin highway. So by far the best way, you know, hypothetically to get around uh, on these uh, snowy landings would be on the, the, the paths that the penguins make. And I mean, if you even thought about trying to walk down a penguin highway, a, a cork staff member would you wrap you with a pole or something. I felt like wonderfully like sort of like a second class citizen here because you know, the, <laughs> the penguins got the uh, got the express lane and we had to you know trudge our way through you know sort of the deep and drifting uh, right. snow there. And, and the HOV. Um, Right. Yeah, they were in the HOV lane and we, we were in the uh, we were from the margins or the shoulder somewhere like that. But yeah, that, that's an example of where, honestly, if it had not been for the um, admonitions of the cork staff, I mean, it would have just been the most logical and rational thing on earth for me to have just you know followed the path like it seemed reasonable but uh, that was strictly uh, off limits and, and actually in, in terms of wildlife viewing it was really pretty cool because since there were no humans on the penguin highways uh, we got really really great looks at them coming and going and the my, the favorite part was when penguins would pass each other they would always give themselves a high five with their flippers i really got a, a kick out of that so Thank you so much, Ted Floyd and Katinka Doman. It sounds like a fantastic trip. If folks are interested in uh, traveling with the ABA in the future, please check out our website, aba.org slash travel. And I think hopefully we will get the um, eBird trip reports and I will post a, uh, a link to that in the show notes. Hopefully we can get those together and we, you can have a look at some of the photos uh, from this uh, pretty amazing trip. Thanks to, to both of you. And um, yeah, I'll see you around. Nate, thanks for having us. See you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. The ABA produces many free resources for the birding community, including this podcast. And all we ask in return is that you help support them by joining the ABA. You also get our magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us, and the feeling that you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. We are also in the middle of our annual year-end appeal. We appreciate any and all donations that you are able to give to help continue to produce these free resources for the birding community. Thank you so much. Special shout outs this week to Kelly Ballantyne of Chicago, Illinois, Nick Bile of Somerton, Arizona, and Lorraine Turk of Joshua Tree, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who lives in Atlanta and notes that the South Georgia that she is familiar with is sadly lacking in elephant seals. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was relieved to find out that the Drake Passage was a turbulent body of water between South America and Antarctica and not a line from God's plan. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who's a fine addition to the ABA team and a Gen 2. You can find us online at aba.org on social media. Most everywhere is American Birding Association. We are on Twitter as at ABA. Writing this segment has already taken way too long, so I'm just going to leave you with this sort of half-baked bit. Uh, something about a writing utensil and a person named Gwen. The punchline is, it's a pen, Gwen. I, I don't I don't have time to flesh it out. Enjoy it anyway. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next week.